Thanks for listening to this podcast of Trending with Timory from the Relevant Radio app. Anything you share in terms of episodes, whether it's texting it to a friend, posting on social media, helps to build up the kingdom for God to help confront the challenging issues we face as a culture, but with joy, with hope, and with an eternal perspective where our faith collides with everyday life, bringing eternal principles to help us live our life joyfully. So, what's trending? Bridging your Catholic faith with your everyday life. You're listening to Trending with Timory on Relevant Radio. We hear a lot about the importance of screens, the crisis of screens in our culture today, especially for young people. Mandy Hammond's family struggle with toxic screen issues, and she's joining us here in just a few moments. She's going to share about how toxic screen use had to come to an end in her family and the impact it had on her family and her children. She'll share her story. She's from ScreenStrong.com. You're listening to Trending with Timory here on Relevant Radio. We're also going to talk about the boycott over Bud Light and what the aftermath has been. It's actually really interesting to see how this has played out. And I'm excited to share with you uh, what has happened. We'll also discuss this perspective of what happens when medical professionals go to treat someone who identifies as transgender. Uh, There's a little bit of a spoof that was done on this. And I'd like to discuss it because we're hearing from a lot of medical professionals saying, I don't have training for this. Why? Because they're only two biological realities that match with whatever type of gender identity you want to claim. They match either male or female. So we're going to explain some of that side of kind of this crisis in the culture with a tug and pull over gender. And it's interesting, over 30 Catholic scholars and women have signed this pro-abortion letter arguing for why they think abortion Abortion should be legal. I'll walk through it today on Trending. You're listening to Trending with Timory here on Relevant Radio. Joining me today is Mandy Hammond. She lives in Iowa with her husband and three children. And her own family, as I mentioned before, struggled with toxic screen usage. And she made some changes with ScreenStrong.com. Mandy, welcome to Trending. I would love to hear your and your family's story. Hi, Timory. Thank you for having me. Um, Yes, we are about three years into our journey. Um, that started in beginning of 2020 before we ever knew what was going to happen in the world. Um, but basically, our the gist of our story is that we waited till 14 to give our two oldest um, smartphones and thought we were being very conservative at the time. We were pastoring a church at the time and thought, you know, we'll be good. Our parenting is good. We have strong values and morals. And we had moved across the country. And so we felt very bad about that and that our kids were not with their friends anymore that they had grown up with. So this is how we justified as parents to give them that phone. Um, But what we saw pretty early on was that, well, first let me paint a picture for you. Um, We gave it to our oldest son on his 14th birthday. And I literally have a video that now makes me cry for a different reason. But at the time we were all crying, giving him this phone, like we had wrapped it up in a box and put it in another box, another box in a bag and made this really big deal and gave him a area code from our Iowa home that we had just moved from. And um, he was crying, we're crying. We just thought, oh, this is the best thing. His brother and sister were so excited. He finally got this phone. And it was within probably weeks, if not months, that my husband and I were like, why did we ever give that phone? 
So fast forward to a couple years later, and at this point, his sister had now gotten a phone because she had turned 14 a year after he did. And we were just starting to see lots of changes in our home. We were starting to see that we were fighting this influence that we couldn't see. And we saw it in attitude. We saw it in behavior. We saw it um, in the way that our kids all of a sudden didn't, you know, quote, need us anymore. They didn't believe what we were saying or the direction that we were giving in our home. It was more like, well, I read this on my phone or so-and-so said this on YouTube or, you know, I'm seeing this on social media. And we just started to lose our kids. That's what it felt like. So we found Screen Strong um, early 2020 in February. And I met with the founder, Melanie Hempy, and she, I just shared my story with her and thought, what do I do? Like, Mm -hmm. how do I lock this phone down? And I was exhausted, like from checking phones every night and just doing what all parents are doing around these screens. And she basically just said, hey, Mandy, you got to take them away. And I was like, what? I don't think so. (laughs) Um, I gave it to them as a gift. They're going to hate me. You know, I went through all those things as a parent of saying, I just, I can't. How? How will I get a hold of them? Like all the reasons that we as parents give these phones. And she just encouraged me to put my coach hat on and take off my mom emotional hat. And she said, if your team is losing, you have to change the play. And so Mm. I went to my husband. I said, look, what if we experimented the opposite direction here? Like, what if like what could go wrong if we take these things back? Like what Melanie's telling me, what Screen Strong is telling me is that we're gonna get our kids back. And if we start replacing the screen time with activities and all this. So we sat our kids down and basically said, hey, we found out some new information and I had made a whole list of things they could do instead. And I said, we're gonna do this little fast, this challenge for 30 days. And little did I know that COVID was about to happen and we would be going into this quarantine time. And we did it wow. without screens. <laughs> So that's kind of the the start of it. So I have so many questions. I think my first question (laughs) is how long did it take you to start to make that transition? Once you said that you were doing the fast, I imagine they didn't respond well. And how was that transition? (laughs) Um, Yeah, great question. Because now I feel like we're three years out and we just see such an amazing change. But back then, oh my goodness, we had rolling of eyes. We had slumping in the chair. You know, my daughter is a writer, which um, she's a creative writer. And so at the time she had written this whole long thing to us, like you're parenting the wrong child and we are not bad kids and we haven't done anything wrong, which was true. I mean, some inappropriate content had entered our home, you know, despite parental controls, things like that. But, you know, it was this constant conflict and this constant fight with them. And so we were just like, we're just going to try this. We're just going to try it. And you're going to get over it, basically. But we said it in a nice way. I mean, Melanie's advice to me was keep your smile on. Keep lots of good, yummy food around. (laughs) Keep crafts and games out on the table, puzzles, whatever, which, of course, we did because quarantine had happened. And so that was easier to do at that time because it was like, what can we do? And we started to see them turn around probably around the two-week mark where all of a sudden they were doing things on their own. They were... You know, my oldest was out in the garage just tinkering with random things that he found on the side of the road. And my daughter was painting. And I'm like, what is happening? Um, so at the 30-day mark, it's like, okay, we love how we're feeling. And guys, we're going to keep going with this. So we replaced phones with a Gab phone. The, um, it's a te- talk text only phone, Gab Wireless. And that was a game changer because all of a sudden as a parent, I didn't have to worry. I didn't have to worry about what my kids might be accessing. And because there weren't games or social media on that phone, they didn't want to be on it. So that mm. was great. So yes, it's, at first, not fun. It was hard, but it got <laughs> to be better. 
Well, and that's not a bad turnaround. Two weeks is, I think, a very quick turnaround. I know for some it might be longer, depending on the level mm -hmm. of screen use. How old were your two teenagers when you took away the phones? Well, my oldest was 16, and my daughter was 15, and then my youngest didn't have a phone yet. So when he turned 14 this past year, we got him a Gab phone from the get-go. Um, and we got the plan that you cannot send pictures or have group texting which is a little inconvenient at times for him, but in reality, that's where a lot of the issues happen yes. because you've got, you know, kids sending inappropriate pictures and kids commenting on it. And it's like another form of social media almost. Yes. Um, so, and I wouldn't say like, it was just all okay in two weeks. It wasn't, I would just say that that's the point where I started to see things happening. Um, my daughter had the hardest time with it because she was on Instagram at the time. And, you know, when you take mm. a drug away from somebody, which is what I didn't realize that's how her brain was responding to it. She actually went through a little bit more anxiety and things for a time as she detoxed. Um, so I guess two weeks is probably a little uh, hopeful on that. I would say probably it was more closer to six weeks before we got through that little detox period and stuff too. But I'd say I started to notice like, okay, you know, their brains were healing basically. Mm -hmm. Talk to me a little bit more about your daughter's story. If you're just joining us, you're listening to Trending with Timaria. With Timaria, I'm joined today by my guest Mandy Hammond. And Mandy took screens away from her two teenage children when she saw it was toxic in her own home. So I know your daughter fared a little differently. The social media and especially Instagram had a very negative impact on her. Mm -hmm. Can you share a little bit about uh, how it was impacting her and what the transformation was? Yes, I didn't realize until now because she's older now and can share. She just graduated from high school, and so she's shared more over the last couple of years. Um, she basically was on Instagram to connect with her friends, you know, and, and I at first made sure that I knew who she was following and who was following her, and I tried to do it all, you know, the right way. But what parents don't realize is there's, and some people know, but there's a For You page. There's content on there that you have no control over. You can't put a parental control on. So what she explains is that, you know, she'd be sitting there in class. It's actually a lot of times she was on her phone was in school, which was is sad, but she got into a creative arts school that was a special charter school. And when they were done with their writing assignment, they'd have a two hour block and they would all just sit on their phones. So I didn't realize that was going on, but she would spend hours and hours on Instagram scrolling, scrolling, scrolling. And she said, you know, you're first looking at, you know, cute cat videos and dog videos and cooking videos. And then all of a sudden there's pornography right in front of you. Mm -hmm. um, and Even so for her that, as a girl. Yes. Oh, yes, mm -hmm. absolutely. Mm -hmm. She did nothing she's typing in or looking for. It just comes up. And um, just a little plug, ScreenStrong just did a podcast on how pornography is chasing our kids mm -hmm. um, on ScreenStrong families. And that that's exactly how it happens. And so then what that creates is a shame and this. Um, isolation because she doesn't want to get caught. She didn't feel like she did anything wrong. It, it presented itself to her, but now she's afraid she's going to get caught. And this has caused, you know, major anxiety. And so she would call me from school and need me to come pick her up. And, you know, um, took her, finally took her to a doctor who we never went back to. We went to one time and my daughter mentioned anxiety and she was ready to put her on an antidepressant. And I said, Good grief. no, we're going to, we're going to try to take, we're going to take a break. And that was right around the time I was finding screen strong. So it kind of all worked out in the timing that I started to get the knowledge and educate myself and my husband um, on what we needed to do, you know. And so that's where we saw the biggest transformation was taking that influence um, because that's really what social media is doing. It's replacing your influence as a parent, you know. And so 
she's having that no matter how many times I'm telling her you're beautiful and you're great and you're talented she's seeing a different story on Instagram and um, I'll just say too, Instagram just came up on the National Center of Sexual Exploitation's Dirty Dozen they just announced that their Dirty Dozen which are like their top 12 social media apps that are they're going after basically to try to change things with them and Instagram's on there again because it's so harmful especially to young girls a lot of parents today have a significant amount of uneasiness about social media, technology, phone use. I think they try to suppress it because either it's a mean of, means of communication, learning, mm -hmm. distraction, any number of reasons. And even just where you mentioned that kids are being put on antidepressants today. A doctor wanted to do that with your daughter. There's an uneasiness mm -hmm. about putting their kid on an antidepressant, but they think there are no other solutions. If the solution mm -hmm. is seemingly to them the one they would never consider, and that is getting rid of screens in their home. Let's talk a little bit about what replaced that time they spent on screens. You mentioned your son, your 16-year-old son, started tinkering the garage mm -hmm. with things he found on the side of the road. I don't think yeah. you really see 16-year-old boys doing this anymore. I know. Well, when they have nothing else to do, they find something. And it helped at the time we were living in Texas. So we had great weather and he's just out riding his bike. It's like, oh, I found this weed whacker and I'm going to see how it works, you know? And I just remember that feeling of like, is he seriously in the garage doing this? This is amazing, you know? <laughs> and it feels so rewarding as a parent. But um, I think the main thing for parents that are even thinking about doing this, it's not something you just take it away. It's not about restricting this item from our kids. It's about replacing it with something that you value, replacing it with family time, with game night. Mm -hmm. I mean, parents that have younger kids will say to us like, oh my gosh, if I have to play that board game one more time, you know, but basically it's only for a time and then your kids start to entertain themselves, but they've been so tr trained to enter entertain themselves on these screens that we as parents have to um, make a lot of effort and think outside of the box. And honestly, it's not that hard. We just need to think, how do we grow up, <laughs> you know, right. and give our kids that same opportunity to have a childhood. So anything from game night to keeping crafts out on the table, even your older kids. Um, I let them go on Amazon originally and said, pick out some activities. And my son picked out like an extreme dot to dot, you know, and I remember just days he would just be sitting there, you know, doing his a thousand dots, you know, and, um, and so, you know, or offering, hey, we're going to go buy a new sporting equipment or a basketball hoop, or you've got to just really be creative with this. And But just remember, it's not about restricting. It's about replacing the screen time with something more valuable so there's mm -hmm. not time for screens at the end of the day. It sounds, Mandy, like there was a transition for you and your kids where you were having to invest more time in helping mm -hmm. them transition into uh, you know, it's a, almost a joke to say this, but like I have a two-year-old and she does a little bit of self-play, not a lot. And you kind of have to cultivate a little of that for them to start mm -hmm. to cultivate their imagination. But you're having to do that with, or you had to do that with 15 and 16-year-olds who really should know how to use their imagination in some ways yeah. do that on their own. And so I think there's a little bit of a, a stymieing of the development of children or regression when we see the introduction of technology, even at an mm -hmm. older age. I mean, you waited until 14 and look at kind of that regression that occurred in that transition you had to help them make back to using their hands, being creative, being okay with being bored even, and I imagine even re-engaging in social interactions as well. Yes. Oh, absolutely. And, and I, that is what's happening, and that's and not to get in the sciencey part of it, but I do a lot of speaking for ScreenStrong now, and so I, I teach on this now about the brain science. And what's happening around that 14-year-old age is this pruning that's happening of their neuronal pathways. And so if they're not using those pathways of creativity and 
you know, their instrument, their sport, because it's getting replaced with screen time, the brain starts pruning those things away because it says, oh, well, it's not using this and we want to be efficient. This brain wants to be efficient. So now we're just going to create these pathways for the screen and what they're doing on the screen. So it's kind of, it's concerning, like, but it can be reversed. You know, we can do something about it, even if your child is 14, 16, whatever, it might be a little harder, but it's possible. Let's talk a little bit more about the brain science because I think that's fascinating. People don't realize that the brain is really developing significantly during these fundamental years when phones and tech mm -hmm. are being introduced and used. I mean, average child, I mean, we're looking at numbers between spending an average of eight to 12 hours a day on mm -hmm. screens today. So in terms of the brain science, you mentioned pruning of the neural pathways and that there are skills being lost. Talk a little bit more about that. Yeah, um, I know. I love this. It took me a little while to understand what this meant, but now I'm getting to a point where I'm like, okay, this totally makes sense. So when your child is born, they have all these connections that are being created and all through childhood, the brain is just on fire with all these amazing new connections of all the things they're learning. And they're all dependent on activities that your child's doing. So when we're seeing that, for instance, the average age now is age six to eight, the kids are being exposed to pornography. This is super, super problematic because it's changing their brain at this super young age when all these connections are making place right taking place so it wakes up something that shouldn't it's not ready for that obviously we know that but so that's what's happening so everything's activity dependent through childhood so a healthy brain is going to be you know getting enough sleep and writing and reading and um, playing outside and being creative being bored all those things and so but for some reason when our kids hit 14 or so, we're just kind of give up on that stuff when really they still have another good four or five years, you know, of their childhood left and it's getting stolen away with the screens. Um, we also have to remember that it takes a brain 25 years to completely mature. And so yes. giving, giving them this device or the social media or whatever at, you know, 14, 15, 10, whatever it is, I mean, they've still got a good 10 to 15 years left until that logical part of their brain is you know ready to make good decisions um, when it comes to an addictive thing like this so i hope that answered your question a little bit but yeah the neuronal pathways is just a fascinating thing to me to realize right when i was thinking this is the best time to give my kid a phone because yes. oh, they can handle it i can trust them that science says otherwise it says no you give them this their brain's going to start pruning away all those healthy activities that you spent all their childhood building they're just going to get pruned away if they get addicted to their phone in that you know in that manner Let's talk a little bit more about where your kids are at today. So they went through high school. It yeah. sounds like both your son and your daughter have since graduated high school. What is it like now for them without phones and in hindsight as well? Yes. You know what I would say, and this is something Melanie told me from the very beginning, and she has a little book called um, Your a Teen Can Survive and Thrive Without a Smartphone. And I will tell you that that's exactly right. Your teenager will actually thrive without the pressure of social media and being connected 24 seven. Now, like I said, my kids have phones that they can text and you know, they're not, they, they don't feel like they're outcast. I mean, at first it was like, okay, all my friends are communicating via Snapchat and I don't have Snapchat. Well, they have been innovative as they've gotten older and they just tell their friends, hey, I don't have Snapchat. And a lot of times my daughter says that people will say, well, good for you, that's, that's good. I'm glad, I'm glad for you that you can do that because they know they're addicted to it and they can't get off of it. So I would say now that they're older, I mean, my son went off to college, he bought his own smartphone and his own package. Um, I can't control what he does on that anymore. You know, I can't, but he knows all of this. I've taught him and I hope that now at this point, his brain's that much more developed that he's making good decisions. Um, 
but I, he saw as soon as he went to college, he, he sees everybody's on their phone all the time. Um, he's had people in his dorm, you know, that he knew weren't ever coming out of the room because they're playing video games all night. So, you know, he saw that for himself and was like, oh, wow, you know, thanks. <laughs> thanks for helping me out, even though he hated it four years ago. Um, and then our daughter, um, she's thriving now. She does have Instagram, but it's on my phone. And so it's not on her device. She's on a device that anything like that is on. And so if she wants to stay in touch with friends or look what's going on at our youth group or whatever, she can go on my phone and look. And typically I'm right with her. You know, she doesn't sit and scroll. So there are ways with your older teens to make a family account or have it on your phone, you know, so your kids can still communicate. And then my youngest son is a freshman in high school. And you know what? He's doing great because he's never even had it. So he's thrilled to have a phone that he can text and he's on the phone, like talking to his friends like we (laughs) used to do, um, which is just rewarding. I love it. I'm like, yes, you can go call your friend, you know, or, or a group call or whatever. And he'll just stay on there for like an hour or two talking it up. And I'm like, good, this is what you should be doing. You know, so I are doing great. Back. Yeah. And I look back on the many hours I spent sitting, talking on the phone and you don't yes. see, you know, even adults don't really do that anymore, but especially younger kids, they don't, I remember, you know, I'd sit and watch a TV show with my friend as it was airing live. Think of the thing yeah. like that as a live TV yeah. show waiting for it to come out. Uh, that de- delayed gratification that is so good for us that has been lost in many ways. Yes. Final yes. question I have for you, Mandy. Um, a lot of people will say, okay, you don't give them tech or you make them wait. You delay, you delay, which mm-hmm. is part of the method of ScreenStrong.com is to delay. And mm-hmm. what I think often people say, well, when they do have technology, they're going to overuse and abuse it. It sounds like mm-hmm. your son more recently has a phone now. How has that relationship for him been with technology now? Well, you know, I don't know if I can completely answer that because he hasn't been under our roof for the last, you know, since he got his phone in September or August, whenever it was. But he's coming home next week from college and he'll be living with us. So it'll be interesting. That's something new I have to navigate, Um, you know, because I before it's like our rule was no phones in bedrooms, like all of that was still in place back in the day. And so now it's kind of like, do I do that? So I'm kind of just to be honest with you in this weird limbo with a college age student of like, okay, this is new ground for me. Um, But we have open conversations. I think that's the biggest thing is to be like, hey, you know, what are you doing on your phone? Or you need to put your phone away while we're eating dinner or, you know, because of course he's on his phone more now because that's, that's what he's doing. He's in college. That's what they're all doing. So I don't want to give the impression that he's just put his phone away and isn't ever on it. I mean, I do get annoyed, you know, (laughs) because I'm like, you know better. Um, So Mandy, thank you so much for joining me today and for your witness and for saying no to screens in your home. Uh, ScreenStrong.com, your ScreenStrong family. I know that you worked with ScreenStrong.com and Melanie Hempe. There's so many fantastic resources at ScreenStrong.com to make the change, to have the support, even the support groups for parents as you're navigating those challenges that arise with detoxing uh, children, teenagers, sometimes even yourself from screens. So check them out, ScreenStrong.com. I'll be right back here on Trending to talk about what's happened with Bud Light and more news on the gender and abortion front.
You're listening to Trending with Timory, where you can discuss what matters most to you. Join the conversation, 888-914-9149. Have you followed the Bud Light story and how the Bud Light boycott was a success? Maybe you're wondering, what was the big deal of Bud Light? I didn't quite catch it. Here's the gist of it. A man who pretends to be not just a woman, but kind of like a little girl, essentially, uh, was celebrated by Bud Light on a beer can, had his face put on a beer can as he looks like a little girl, and he was also sent a bunch of free beer to be that influencer selling and promoting beer. Because why? Bud Light beer needed to come into the pockets of the next generation of young people and needed to appeal and be inclusive. Well, people boycotted. And this is what's fascinating. Even though Budweiser's trying to claim otherwise in terms of how their stock and their sales and everything has dropped, week after week, they saw a drop. In two of the most significant weeks, they saw 11% drop in sales and then a 26% drop in sales. That was as of the week of April 17th. And that is a massive drop, especially when you look overall for this year. They're already down over 8% this year in sales. That's a major loss for a multi-billion dollar brand. Now, here's what's interesting. They're getting ready to spend triple the dollars they usually do for their summer marketing budget. I was even just looking at some videos online. There was a video from even just this past week at Fenway Park in Boston where no one, no one, I repeat, no one, I was watching the video, no one was in line for a beer at the Bud Light station But there were tons of people, lines all the way back to the seats for other beer companies, for other types of beer. Here's what's different about the boycott against the Bud Light compared to others. And you can't tell me that everyone at Fenway Park was conservative and Catholic, Christian, whatever you want to call them. No, no one was in line in the Bud Light line. Why? Well, I think there's a lot to be said here. Number one, let's talk about it practically. There are other financial choices that you can make in terms of what kind of beer you're going to drink that are comparable. So this isn't a matter of, man, I really hate Target. I don't want to shop at Target anymore, but it's one of the few areas in person where there are certain things that I can get that are accessible and somewhat reasonably priced. I'm not even going to engage whether or not I think that's (laughs) true about Target, but I get sometimes why people still shop at Target, even though they're absolutely awful, and I regret my life every rare time I enter one of their stores in the last 10 years. Because every time I go in there, there's pro-LGBTQ clothing. In particular, for some reason, it's in the men's section. Uh, But that said, setting that aside for a moment, Fenway Park, no one is in line for a Bud Light versus all the other beers. Lines are going out to the stands. Why? Because people have had an opportunity to vote with their money. And there are other options that don't hurt the bank. There are other beers that they can buy that they're not forced to spend twice as much. It's something very simple they can do. So on one side, people are voting with their money. On the other side, I don't think it's just conservatives, Republicans, Christians, Catholics who are objecting to Bud Light and what they've done. I think it's the whole population of the United States saying, I'm not comfortable with this. This is weird. And those who perhaps are comfortable with it 
are a little more hesitant to buy a Bud Light in front of someone because they actually care what other people think. That's called peer influence. Think about it. We should have peer influence, positive peer influence. And I think that that's sometimes the problem of today's culture is that we are allowing our peers to influence us Catholics. It's not easy to be countercultural. This Bud Light boycott was one moment where it actually was somewhat easy. A beer is a luxury. A beer is not necessary. And there are other cheap beers you can buy instead. So people showed their peer influence. Maybe you were one of those people. That was an easy thing to do. What about when it's difficult? What about when you're in a conversation? What about when you're being told to choose him, her, she, they, it, pronouns, whatever it is? You have a lot of choices in life, just like you have choices for what kind of beer you're going to drink. You even have gluten-free beers. Hey, I'm allergic to gluten. I can't eat gluten. I mean, there are a lot of options. I mean, those are pricey in and of themselves. I don't really drink that much in general. Uh, but people show their choice preference. We need to show our choice preference for honoring what God has in store for the human person, the human body. We need to show our choice preference for what is right and wrong and not be afraid. We need to be willing to influence our peers rather than allowing our peers to always influence us. Whether that be into silence or that be into conformity with the culture. And although it may be easy to replace, swap out Bud Light in your life, believe it or not, it actually is easy to swap out all those other things in life that we think are making us happy or that we're doing to please other people or even to please ourselves. And when I say it's easy, it's a choice. It's a yes or a no. Stop drawing the line saying, oh, but there really is a gray area. No, it's yes or no. It's black or white. So make the choice. That choice is easy. Do all the pieces that come with it necessarily fall into line every single time perfectly? No. Sometimes there are going to be people who disagree with us. I just answered a question earlier in the week from a woman who said, I stood with my Catholic faith. I refused to to call two of my female friends by gender-neutral pronouns when they asked me to. Guess what? Not only did those people cut her off, but all the other girlfriends in the group cut her off as well. It was easy in the respect that she saw it was black and white. She said no. What was hard was a response from others. But let me tell you this. This is the secret. This really is the secret. If we cling to Jesus Christ on the cross, if we conform to what he is calling us to, if we abandon our desire for friendship, if we abandon our friendships we already have to him, he will transform those experiences. He will send new people into your life that you need. God always provides, not necessarily what you want or in the timing you want, but he always provides. Look at the people whom he loved so dearly and who were closest to him on earth. I've heard some people say before, man, if you look at how Jesus Christ's closest friends were treated, you might not want to be a Christian. And look at the 11 faithful apostles. All of them but one, that's the youngest apostle John, really experienced an extremely brutal martyrdom and death. What makes us think that we can live differently? Do you think you'd even be able to accept martyrdom at the end of your life whenever 
that time came. Tomorrow, five years from now, after a long, many years lived life. I think that if we aren't saying no to the wrong things and yes to the right things now, such as people did with the whole boy li- Bud Light boycott over the last month, if we can't say no to the little things and then build up to the medium-sized things and then build up to the big-sized things, if we can't be the ones to influence our peers as to what is right and wrong, what is good, what is true, and what is beautiful, we won't be able to make the sacrifice. There's a reason why when we look at the number of saints there are in the history of the church, proclaimed by the church, acknowledged by the church, there aren't that many. When you think about the number of people that die each year. Jesus warned us when our attachments to the world are too weighty. We have a hard time making it through. He talks about, right, the eye of the needle. If you've ever tried to thread through a needle hole, how difficult it can be. You have to sometimes recut and recut, work on the phrase. You know, be very delicately, like, wet it and roll it so that you can point, push through the eye of the needle. We have to detach from what other people think, sometimes from our own desires, our own dreams. And it's not just detachment, it's abandonment, and it's a joyful abandonment to God. So use what's happened with Bud Light. Again, in one week, the week of April 17th, a 26% drop in sales. Overall this year, an 8% drop in sales. That is huge for a multi-billion dollar corporation such as them. Bud Light made a mistake. Money talks. Men and women had other options for beer at a comparable price. So we were able to show no thank you. This is what happens when Bud Light celebrates a man pretending to be a little girl on a beer can, as if that's truth. It's not, and we know that's the case. And this wasn't a partisan vote with money. This was a bipartisan vote with money. This was a non-religious and religious vote with money. Or else you would see places like Fenway Park in Boston, people were still there in the Bud Light line. And I know some people still bought Bud Light, but not. Not to the extent that it occurred before. You're listening to Trending with Timory here on Relevant Radio. Coming up, we're going to talk about what happens when a medical professional treats someone who identifies as transgender. And we're also going to talk about a letter written by a bunch of Catholic women talking about why abortion should get the A-OK from the church and political leaders. It's totally wrong. I'll explain to you why. listening to Trending with Timory, where you can discuss what matters most to you. Join the conversation, 888-914-9149. Okay, so I saw a really fascinating video the other day about what happens when a medical professional treats someone who identifies as transgender. 
And, you know, it used to be that in the operating room, in the emergency room, you could say something such as 20-year-old female, and then you know a little bit of a baseline when you start caring for the individual in an emergency situation. If you don't treat the 20-year-old female as a female, well, it turns into chaos. Now, I experienced this in a certain respect when I was just a handful of days after Christmas with my newborn baby. She was just four days old, and we'd just been sent to the children's hospital emergency room. And right after, my husband and I had just finished pinning her down as she screamed and thrashed so that we could hold her still and try to sing to her and calm her while they ran their third EKG since we arrived. Just kind of having a quiet moment. They then hand me paperwork at the children's hospital. And on that paperwork includes a plethora of choices of whether or not my child's male or female. There wasn't a choice for biological male or female. There were all kinds of options. But and when I say biological female, it wasn't like, okay, what does the child biologically, what is the gender identity? No, there are just options. And one of them, um, you could just put male, you could just put female. But I crossed out the whole thing and I wrote, please treat my daughter as a biological female because that is what she is and there is no other way to treat her, just to be clear. But what if my daughter was 16 years old in a car accident and they failed to treat her uh, in that way and damaged vital organs for her to be able to have children, her reproductive organs? I mean, there are so many things that could go wrong here and parents are legitimately having moments such as these where they're having to navigate this. So listen to this. This popped up on social media a few days ago, it was a reel circulating from an episode of The Good Doctor that aired back in 2018 on ABC. And it was relevant to then as something people laughed at, but it's even more relevant today as literally physicians today are saying, I'm not trained to handle this situation both medically as well as interpersonally, psychologically. It's a real crisis. So here's the scene. There are three physicians in the room and a young patient laying on the bed. Listen up. I'm a girl. You're transgender? Yes. No, Quinn has XY chromosomes like Jared and me, not XX like you. Science says he's male. No, Quinn has gender dysphoria. Her assigned gender is not the one she identifies with. She's mismatched, Dr. Murphy. But biologically... What even biologically? How do you know you're supposed to be a boy? Your question doesn't make sense. I'm not supposed to be anything. I am a boy. Biologically, that's it. Okay, deep tenderness at McBurney's point. Could be acute appendicitis. Murphy, get imaging to confirm. Mm. Do you think he's complicated or confused? Dude, you gotta quit calling her a he. We're never going to win this competition if you're disrespecting our patient. Don't they have transgender people in Wyoming? Okay, transgender patient care was not part of my medical school curriculum. Was it part of yours? No. Quinn doesn't have appendicitis. He has testicular cancer. Approaches she. in this entire... Oh, you see, he says she. There are three approaches in this entire situation. One medical professional cuts through it all and says, just get me imaging to confirm whether or not this patient is male or female. One of 
the care providers is trying to make sure that they're really gender neutral with the patient and just wants to refer to the patient as what this biological male wants to be referred to, and that is as a female. And then the third care provider is saying, no, she has XY, she is not a she, that person is a he. Isn't it so confusing sometimes to misgender someone accidentally because they keep saying the wrong thing? If only it were just clear, but it is, it's simple. We make it a mess. So the third approach is one of the younger people there who says, as a care provider, This person has XY chromosomes and is a man just like myself and the other guy. But what's interesting is is that this character who's standing by the biological reality of male-female and this patient is a male has a very robotic type of response and interaction and movement to everything. And that's intentional. It's trying to make it seem as if those who say there's no such thing as a man becoming a woman or a woman becoming a man that there are two sexes, male and female, and you can't change, no matter what hormones or plastic reconstructive surgery you engage in. Well, people who say that are robotic because they just go with what the check between the legs is. They just go with biology and chromosomes. No, we should, because that's the way to honor the body and the proper function of the body. As I said, I was in the emergency room with a four-day-old, and they wanted me to tell tell them what my four-year-old identified as. And I was at a children's hospital. This was ridiculous. And I actually had to cross everything out and just write, please treat my child as the biological female that she is. Now, one of the doctors in this video said, one doctor calls her mismatched. So that this is a mismatched individual. God doesn't make mistakes. And we need to remember that. There's so many things that we could talk about. One At one point, the patient looks at I think it's Quinn who is saying, no, this is a biological male with XY chromosomes. The patient looks and says, how do you know you're a boy? And it's, again, this very robotic response as if it should be, but as if making fun of the fact that it is, and we shouldn't be making fun of it. And, you know, it's interesting because there's a call, uh, Jack from St. Louis, Louis, Montana called, and he asked why I'm so obsessed with LGBTQ things. He said, it's not a choice in the matter. Uh, this isn't a publicity stunt. This isn't a publicity stunt to just draw attention to the gender issue. Uh, people do have a choice. And when they're really struggling, we should provide adequate medical care. And the reality is, is that when we don't provide adequate medical care, that there are nearly every single instance in international data that we have from people who experience gender dysphoria, which is a medical term so that people can treat it medically and give cross-sex hormones, um, Whenever that occurs, we see there are comorbidities, depression, anxiety, OCD, all kind of sexual abuse, any kind of other issue going on that's not being addressed and that we are furthering the mental health crisis of an individual who's struggling by just ushering in a transgender identity and not treating the whole person. So what happens in this uh, brief clip from the good doctor? Well, they end up taking imaging to confirm and sure enough, Proving the insides are clear, sex organs prove that this is a biological male with male genitalia. And here's the reality. There's a difference between male and female. There are countless ways, countless ways for us to make it clear that we understand someone is male or female. The internal parts reveal the femininity and masculinity. Sex organs, male and female, genitalia, exteriorly. The body set even, 
Sex differences are written into every cell of the body. Even the muscular differences between male and female matter and say something about whether or not we're male or female. But let's come back to this from a medical perspective because this is the crisis that's occurring. It's a treatment crisis. Time is wasted over a political debate that is waging war on the bodies of people who are struggling with a mental crisis. It's a mental illness that we are facilitating or creating when someone is uncomfortable in their maleness or femaleness. Rather than, as I mentioned before, treating other comorbidities, it could be depression, anxiety, other types of addiction, low self-esteem, lack of affirmation, broken familial ties as a child. There are so many things that can be going on that are comorbidities contributing to the crisis of saying, I'm uncomfortable as a female. And again, I'll just say it over and over again, what teenage boy isn't uncomfortable with his voice cracking? What teenage girl is comfortable with going from being delighted in as a child to suddenly being sub- sexually objectified in the modern day culture? This is a crisis medically. When we say there's no such thing as male and female, we waste time on a political debate, wasted time over doing things such as blood testing or imaging when someone may need life-saving care, and yet they're saying that they're one thing but they're really another, and parts of their body could be damaged. And here the debate is, does this person have appendicitis or testicular cancer? That's a really big difference. That's a really big difference and could be life-threatening if not treated rapidly and time is wasted on this political debate. And someone called and said that the one of the physicians who was in this good doctor episode where he's the one who say no this person is a biological male he's actually autistic so not only are they making the person who says there's such a thing as male and female biologically the oddball who has robotic answers but they label this individual as autistic so you know it's very very odd the way they play these dynamics to create the people who say there's such a thing as truth as being odd so they present the truth in the show but it's an odd person who presents it and to be very clear i'm not saying that someone with autism is odd but different from the other characters and i think that that's what we have to see there's always something when a truth is presented in television in many ways today there's always something off about that character so that they try to make it seem as if, well, even though they're saying what the truth is, you don't really want to identify as that yourself. It, it's very, very bizarre the way that these shows are handling things. What happens when a person enters the emergency room and you can no longer say 20-year-old female as a baseline? Chaos. But chaos is the goal in this whole transgender movement. There's no such thing as reality, nature, or God. This is ultimately a rejection of God due to an atheist culture that has rejected the transcendent dimension of who we are as male and female, individual people created in God's image and likeness. We're created to be with God in heaven. Lies don't make things right. Validating people's lies don't make things right. And lies don't take you to heaven. We can't be afraid to tell the truth. And again, that brings us back to the whole Bud Light uh, fact that people voted with their money, with their dollars, in terms of what they wanted to stand for. The truth of the matter is, is that a man dressing up as a little girl and celebrating that he's a woman on a Bud Light can isn't truth. 
People didn't want to celebrate that. And it was one of those opportunities where financially they could do that because there were other comparable prices. Life won't always present such an easy option for you. Sometimes you might even lose your job for standing with the truth. But I know, and you can talk to the many people who have done this as well, that God provides when you have to put your foot down and say no. What is happening today isn't just a matter of me saying that I don't like what's happening with LGBTQ movement. It's a matter of principle, what is right and wrong, the pursuit of happiness for the individual experiencing gender dysphoria. It's a matter of right and wrong for the parents who are trying to help their children navigate this crisis of identity that is a real crisis that needs to be truly treated without any political agenda or science or medical experiment on the bodies of children. We do not know fully what the impact will be of puberty blockers for children. We do not know fully what the impact will be of a couple months of taking testosterone if you're a, a girl or a couple months of taking estrogen if you're a boy. People are still figuring this out. I was joined earlier this week by Chloe Cole, who starting 11 years old was introduced to this idea and started to identify personally as transgender. By 13 years old was on cross-sex hormones by the age of 15. 15 years old had had a double mastectomy within six months to a year, changed her mind, and has to live with the consequences the rest of her life, all of which she does not know. She does not know if she will be able to have children biologically. She knows she will not be able to ever nurse her children. And believe it or not, this was the clincher of her whole testimony that was so profound. She was 18 years old and shared her testimony this week on the show. I hope you will go to the Relevant Radio app or relevantradio.com forward slash trending and listen to her testimony. Because you know what? was transformative for her. She'd been hiding in her own home, not wanting people to know that she'd been dressing up in girls' clothes and even putting on makeup while presenting as a boy to the public. But she ends up in a different school curriculum program because she wasn't doing well in school. She wasn't doing well emotionally. She wasn't performing well in her life. She was struggling. Parents help her change to another school, and she ends up in a child developmental class where she learns about bonds between parents and children, and she learns about the fundamental bond and gift designed by God for the bonding of a mother with her infant when she nurses. And with sorrow, she looked upon that, knowing she would never be able to, but saying, I want children. I want that. And that was the catalyst. In addition to all the physical fallout of her body that she had been experiencing medically, after the double mastectomy, the puberty blockers, and taking testosterone. It was that looking a little older, 15 to 16 years old, saying, I actually do want a child. And even though they warned me just a little bit, just a little bit, and once, about the impact of cross-sex hormones and all of this, I didn't know what I was consenting to. I was a child. Why could what I think about having a child? I wasn't prepared to have a child. I hope you'll listen to her testimony. It's profound. She's only 18 years old. Pray for her. Pray for others who are struggling with her identity. And check out the resources we list on that episode. We'll post the link on social media. Up next, Family Rosary with Patrick Madrid, Drew Mariani, and Father Rocky.